not at all like prison here. <laughs> and I just wanted to start this with some words of appreciation. Oh, the food isn't at all like it is in prison. In fact, I think the food here is, uh, it, it must be coming into the classic period of IMS food. I haven't experienced anything like it. <laughs> um, in prison, there's a, a background rumble of grumbling, complaining, and uh, just the, the background quiet and the background earnestness and effort is, uh, is another precious thing about, about this time. It's been wonderful to be with you. I wish I could be here for longer with you. <laughs> um, Jim, I would like uh, to um, discuss with you this afternoon your personal involvement in the peace movement. I would like to talk with you about the um, events that um, led up to your trip to Miami, the period immediately following, and how you see our responsibility with regard to peace work. But initially, I would like to take it from the, the personal background and experience, both spiritually and in the form of peace action. So, what were the um, events that led up to the period of, say, December 1983, when you first committed yourself with other men and women to this peace action? Well, uh, there's a, personally and globally, uh, what happened in December 1983 was that uh, NATO began to deploy Pershing II missiles in Europe. And that was a, um, a very evident part of a shift in what the United States said it was doing from uh, a nuclear policy of, of a deterrence to one of first strike, that is, attack theory. These are attack weapons. And uh, it seemed... important to point that out, to not let that go by as a secret. Now, from the um, recognition that this was important to point out, what steps did you take personally? Who did you get in contact okay. with? How did, you, mm. how did it go to the next step? Personally, uh, my uh, I've been involved in various kinds of social action for a long time, since uh, the early 1960s in the civil rights and anti-war in Vietnam movements. Um, but I never got, did anything that got me into prison for a long time before. And this, uh, this road really started with a retreat that I went to with Daniel Berrigan. Um, it made it very clear that, that to, to me to be with Daniel Berg and that I couldn't play around. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, 
in so, this in this particular retreat, a commitment came to take action. Well, I went out of the retreat really not knowing. I walked out uh, out of the retreat center, not on the highway, and I didn't know whether I was going to go this way or that way. Mm. It was that disorienting. Right. And what I finally did was I went this way down to uh, to start living in the uh, community that Daniel Berrigan's brother is part of in Baltimore called Jonah House. Right. Now, for some years you've been coming here to... Um, IMS and, shall we say, engaged in uh, Buddhist practices and I certainly, of course, have known you for, for several years. How did you fit in to Christian Center and the peace work there? I fit in very well there. Uh, I was very comfortable with them. In fact, I thought that I was really seeing Christianity for the first time. Hmm. And uh, they seemed to be very comfortable with, with me. Uh, some more than others, <laughs> and uh, the more I kept my mouth closed, the uh, uh, <laughs> the more comfortable. <laughs> the more comfortable it was. <laughs> so, at Jonah House, then, then some discussions began to take place about what you were actually going to do to uh, bring to the notice of a number of people, anyway. What was the U.S. policy? Well, by the time I got to jo when I went to Jonah House, I already pretty much knew what I was getting into. Uh -huh. uh, that was part of the decision. Jonah House has been in. Well, Philip Berrigan and Daniel Berrigan were part of the first of these plowshares actions mm. in 1980, uh -huh. and uh, have they've been a guiding force in this movement uh, since that time. Uh, the people that I got in contact were. One of them was a Jonah House person, but the other people were uh, mm. friends. And, and before actually um, going on to the uh, um, site, missile site, um, what, some four months later, you know, what took place in that period of time between December 83 and Easter Sunday when you went in? We. There were eight of us that managed to get together. We were members of, uh, pretty much all members of something called the Atlantic Life Community, which is a series of communities involved in, in uh, peace act actions up and down the Atlantic coast. And uh, we'd gotten to know each other through peace actions at the Pentagon and other places. And uh, we sort of felt each other out and... and uh, just found, our, found each other to do an action and began to explore this. We uh, started taking weekends with each other, going to one city or another and finding a church to spend the weekend in or something, someplace, and uh, bring a lot of food and just spend uh, two or three days together mm -hmm. uh, talking about the action, talking about our, our feelings and our convictions, and our, our doubts and our fears, and uh, trying to see what this meant for each of us on a personal level, and uh, trying to build up a, a degree of trust. Mm. So in, in, in this period of time of uh, establishing the trust between the group of you, then um, came from that 
the set to go to Miami? What, well, what we, we met just about every weekend for, well, every other weekend for this four months, and we only decided where, where we were going to go and what we were going to do at the very end of this period. Mm -hmm. and, and say a little bit about what you're going to do. Well, we decided we wanted to pick on the Pershing II missile because that was the that was the that was the missile of the moment as as far as NATO deployments were concerned, and uh, still is a, a beast. Um, and the, myth, the the Pershing was made in was made in uh, Orlando, Florida, so that's why we went there. So you. you you traveled down there as a group? Well, we traveled down there and some of us hitchhiked and two of us took a plane and a bunch of people carpooled and we all got there and... And, uh, and, and then from the time that you arrived in Orlando, what, what took place as far as... Like you, you had told me that um, you got a bolt cutter what else did you take? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are people in there are people in Florida who uh, we had to let in on this, and and uh, people in Florida who very very gener generously took took us into their their house without really knowing what was going to happen, just that it was something that they couldn't talk about, and and uh, there was a certain risk or, or great risk in having us there. And they were willing to do that, and we spent a week in this house uh, preparing ourselves uh, by buying bolt cutters and and uh, the other tools we needed, and and our last-minute psychological preparation, mm -hmm. our role-playing and yeah. whatnot. And from that, then came the came Easter Sunday, and as I mentioned to you in a. Uh, in a letter, it was on April the 22nd, and coincidentally, this happened to be my 40th birthday, and I regard it as the best birthday present I could have had. Um, so, on Easter Sunday, you went, um, what took place that night? We, uh, we had a little silence together and got in two cars and went to, to the... Uh, Martin Marietta plant, and uh, one of our cars uh, almost didn't make it. it wasn't very <laughs> <laughs> but we did get there, and uh, we were carrying bottles of blood and crowbars and the bolt cutter and uh, hammers and documents and all of the stuff. Which we unloaded out of the cars and went back through the through the woods along a path that we'd uh, uh, scoped out on another day, and uh, uh, hid ourselves in the bushes near uh, near the back of a building that was called the Pershing Kit Building. Now, we we didn't have any inside contact at Martin Marietta. All we knew was that there was this building called the Pershing Kit Building. And it sounded like that would be where they'd be shipping these things out of. Mm. So, uh, so we hid out there, and we for about an hour while the uh, mosquitoes and the chiggers did a number on us. And uh, 
uh, watched for guards and didn't see any. And what time was this? This was about four in the morning. And uh, then we went up to the fence and cut through the fence and went in. Uh, uh, we broke into two groups. One of us had it, uh, pried the door open into the Persian kit building and uh, went inside and took one of these kits, which was in a huge box. Actually, they're conversion kits. They could convert Pershing-1 missiles into Pershing-2 missiles. And we just chose one of these about 40 boxes and uh, uh, opened it and took some parts out and uh, the parts that we were able to destroy, we destroyed. Um, then we hung a banner there saying violence uh, ends where love begins. Uh, we poured blood on blueprints and and on some of these parts. We hung pictures of uh, children and ones that we loved around. Um, the other the other group went to some Pershing II launchers, which are like huge trucks, uh, and uh, went onto the truck and or went onto this launcher and cut hydraulic cables and and electrical cables and and uh, again a yard full of these launchers. They chose one, uh, made it so that it wouldn't work, hung a banner on it, poured blood on it. Uh, then we all quit and we came back to a very obvious uh, spot in front of the Pershing Kit building, uh, sat in a circle on top of some pallets and uh, waited for the uh, for some to be discovered. Now at that point of course and just by your very presence on there and particularly given all the uh, paranoia with regard to terrorists and so forth. I mean, your lives must have been very much at risk, I mean, of being shot right there and then. How are you working with all that fear and real possibility? Yeah, fear and also wondering whether this is a very smart thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we had to to ask ourselves, how would we feel if one of our number was was, uh, wounded or killed? what would the effect of this be on the person who did the deed? Um, and is that all worth, worth the risk? Um, so what, what kind of um, expression did you show um, to the guards that you weren't armed? Well, when the guard appeared and they heard the guard coming, we were all holding hands in a circle. Uh, we left our, our weapons, our hammers, and our crowbars far away. Um, so you're sitting in a circle like this, and we were singing uh, pieces flowing like a river. What was the response of the guards to seeing the group of you there in the middle of the night singing and, <laughs> and their missiles being hammered? Well, the uh, first guard to discover us. Actually, the first person to, to, who might have seen us uh, uh, driving by in a car quite close by uh, almost came to us and then sped up <laughs> went away. <laughs> and then we didn't see anything more for about 15 minutes, perhaps. And the second guard that came up was a, was a woman. Um, 
They're an Israeli woman. Uh, <laughs> uh, and her reaction when she saw us was uh, to say, my God, what are you doing here? Uh, in a, in, with real wonder in her voice, <laughs> without too much concern or fear. <laughs> and and uh, uh, she just stayed nearby. She left her gun in her holster. She uh, got on her car radio and called for reinforcements, which uh, began to arrive in, in great numbers from a great number of various police agencies. Um, um, they, they took you away? Where did they take you to? Well, they left us there for another two or three hours while they checked out the scene, and <laughs> the Martin Marietta executives came and looked over the mess, and, and uh, we were taken off from the group one by one and questioned all very politely, all remarkably politely, um, and let to go back onto our pallet to sit down in our circle. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, maybe about three hours later, we were uh, arrested and taken to the uh, Orange <coughs> County Jail in Orlando, which was a nasty place. What made it nasty? Um, well, my, uh, the cell that I was in for uh, a month before trial there was eight, 10 by 14 feet, and there were eight men in this 10 by 14 cell. And uh, we got out of the cell for an hour every day to, to eat. There was no exercise, period. There was a... And there was, there was no sorting of, of, um, of criminals. Uh, there, were, there were people in there on traffic violations, and there were, uh, uh, there were rapists. Yes. And um, was this at this point where you handcuffed at all? I mean, was it was it that kind of? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Uh, all of the after we were finally arrested, there was all of the heavy steel kind of stuff, and that lasted from then until the time mm. we got to Denbury <laughs> in September. Um, what about the trial itself? What were you were you what were you able to say in the trial? How was the trial conducted? Well, we had a we had a lot of. Uh, things to say at the trial, and we weren't <laughs> able to say very many of them, um, legal things. Uh, we wanted to make uh, the argument that, that these weapons were illegal. Uh, we brought uh, an indictment of the Martin Marietta Corporation and the United States government into the action with us, uh, making the point that these weapons have no right to exist by law. By whose law? Well, by international law, mm-hmm. and also by uh, uh, Judeo-Christian law. Mm. Um, and how long did the, the trial last? The trial lasted six days. Um, we wanted to. Well, we we were going to make an, the argument of uh, that these that these weapons are. are have a right to be acted against by an individual because they are uh, endangering life, and we—it's analogous. It's a—it's a legal principle analogous to breaking into a burning house mm-hmm. to uh, rescue the children that are yeah. on the second story, let's say. And um, there are various legal uh, uh, 
um, standards that you have to meet to make this argument. Mm -hmm. And we weren't allowed to meet those. We weren't allowed to try. Mm -hmm. um, we weren't allowed to bring on ex expert witnesses, which we were prepared to. Uh, lawyers and historians and, and uh, mm -hmm. biologists and so forth who are going to testify as to the, to the imminent danger of these things. What were, the, what were you actually charged with? We were charged with uh, destruction of U.S. government property mm. was the main one, and also conspiracy. And at the end of the six days, what was the, the verdict for you and for the others? Well, the, uh, the jury took about an hour to eat lunch and find a spirit guilty. And we were all... We were all found guilty equally, and we were all given the same sentence by the judge. Of three years? Yes. Right. And from then, you were um, moved on until finally you ended up at Danbury. Now, si since then, Jim, there have been a number of other similar <coughs> actions. Could you speak a little bit about those? The, uh, ours was the eighth of this series. The ninth of this series happened in Minneapolis. Uh, at the Sperry Rand Company, where a uh, where two people went in and smashed a prototype computer that was being uh, built as part of a guidance system, and uh, these people were uh, tried and convicted and given six months suspended sentence by the judge, who gave a. A, a very interesting opinion in which he said there's some kind of strange double standard going on here when uh, 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 what had happened with, him, with this judge is that he had just previously heard a case where uh, Sperry Rand had been brought by the government for uh, $3 million in fraudulent overcharges on one contract. And uh, the government had asked that the Sperry Rand company pay back 10% about three million, and it hadn't sought any uh, any uh, time for any of the executives. Yeah. So the judge was wondering what was going on here because the, yes. the, the U.S. attorney wanted to throw these two young people away. Now, in Europe, where there has been some uh, break-in, such as by the women at Green and Common, who similarly have. Uh, um, Entered, entered um, the nuclear base, have uh, made their protest, there has been an, um, an arrest afterwards, generally seven days or 14 days. There's the exam, the case with in West Germany where there was a break-in, there was uh, a fine and no sentence. Please <coughs> tell us what happened to your friends when they broke in, Helen Woodson and Carl Cabot, and, and the people that broke in with them. Yes, that was that was the eleventh in the uh, series. The tenth in the series was at uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. uh, people went into the uh, electric boat shipyard and hammered on D five missile tubes. Now, these this D five missile system is uh, will be going into the new Trident submarines, and it's going to transfer the transform these weapons from. Uh, retaliatory weapons to first strike weapons are going to be extremely accurate. 
this D5 missile system. These people acted on that and they have not been tried yet. Uh, the 11th one, which Christopher asked about, um, four people, uh, a mother of 11, 10 of whom are adopted children, Down syndrome, uh, and such, was one of the actors. Two priests, uh, brothers, Carl and Paul Cabot, who um, uh, Carl has spent a lot of time doing work among the poor in Peru and Chile, and his brother in the American city. Um, when was this, by the way? This was uh, in February of this year. And the last of that group is an Indian named White Feather. Uh, went to a missile man missile silo in Kansas. Uh, walked through the cornfield and through the through the fence and uh, pulling behind them a a uh, um, ninety pound jackhammer, an air compressor, and uh, uh, went to work on the on the lid of this missile man silo. Uh, they were very recently tried and convicted, and uh, Carl and Helen were given eighteen year sentences. Um, Paul was given a 10-year sentence, and White Feather was given an 8-year sentence for this protest action, did a, which did a total of $11,000 damage. Now, why, why is it, Jim, what uh, seems to me um, a savage, if not barbaric, sentence, um, that there's not a great deal of publicity about it, and, and just see the response from the group here of the of of the of the shock of 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 two people who didn't committed no violence to anybody and did a trivial amount of damage as far as protests go have received just a few weeks ago an eighteen year sentence each plus twelve years plus eight years for the others why is why do you feel that there's no public outcry? Why is, it, why is it that none of us know about it? Well, it hasn't been publicized. Yes. And it's uh, not for lack of people trying to get it publicized. Um, it did receive publicity in Kansas City, which is the, uh, the way with uh, the pattern of the way these get publicized. The first one, the Plowshares 8, which had Daniel and... Philip Berrigan in it, and others did get some nationwide publicity. But since then, uh, these actions have had local publicity only. And they, they go out on the AP wire and the UP wires. Mm. And uh, sometimes um, the hometown paper from one of the actors will pick up the story. But uh, for instance, the New York Times uh, said nothing about uh, either this action out in Kansas City or of the trial and sentencing. And how long was their trial in Kansas? Four days. Um, with there being um, this number of actions and quite a number of you already in, in prison, are the actions likely to continue? 
are there are there the people there who are, who are committed to this or has the shock of this 18 year sentence it really frightened people well i really don't know the 12th of these actions has happened uh, it happened during the uh, trial of the uh, of the four and it also happened in kansas and also on a minute man missile silo and uh, this it was one man acting alone and he will be going to trial on the 29th of this month in Kansas City in the same courtroom. Okay. Um, so we're all very much with him. He's a Vermonter, a farmer. Uh, but as far as whether they will deter, clearly they're trying to deter these actions. Clearly they've decided that this has to stop. And uh, uh, we have every reason to believe that that uh, the Justice Department does speak with the prosecutors and does speak with the judges. And there isn't kind of a, a national policy on how to, to deal with these actions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that this last sentencing shows the heavy hand of Edwin Meese. And uh, whether it will work, whether it will deter, or we'll just have to wait and see. I have less information than anybody <laughs> in prison. Um, in the um, um, pris prison it itself there, um, are you with any of the others who you engaged in the action with? Yes, there are four of us in the Danbury prison camp. Uh, two from the Griffiths Plowshares, which was the action that immediately preceded ours at the <laughs> Strategic Air Command base in Rome, New York. These people went into uh, to a <coughs> hangar and, and uh, hammered on a B-52 bomber that was being converted to carry air-launched cruise missiles. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the people who acted in that action was uh, Elizabeth McAllister, who's uh, one of the members of my community and uh, Bill Berrigan's wife. Um, she is in Alderson Prison in West Virginia now on a three-year sentence. And two of the men from that action uh, are in the Danbury prison camp with uh, Todd Kaplan, my co-defendant, and, and me. And then in the big prison, the big prison with walls down below is a fifth of us, a member of our group, uh, who's a Swedish national named Per Herngren. And he has to be uh, down there in heavy security because he is a foreigner. I think he might, he might leave. Can just as a momentary um, aside, Jim, um, just about this extraordinary heavy-handedness and uh, which the government can um, partake of with regard to this farmer who broke the, the grain embargo that you told me about, who's in the prison, just say a little bit there. Oh. C.W. Deaton, he's a Texan and he's a born-again Christian. He's a part of, the, of our community down in the, of prisoners down in the Danbury camp. Uh, is serving a 50-year sentence for defying the Russian grain embargo. And... Uh, since everybody in America now thinks that the Russian grain embargo was a bad idea, he keeps expecting to get pardoned, but he's served nine years now. Um, 
with the with the the situation and and the peace movement, which tends to, as it were, flow in waves of energy and enthusiasm, and then it reaches a trough. In your time in uh, prison, have you had have you given much thought about new ways of expressing protest or how people and how those of us who have our freedom can contribute to the to peace movement? Well, I uh, we're all very uh, interested in, in civil disobedience. We all think that it's very important uh, to to say no in this very strong way. Uh, and uh, the Christian people tend to say, you know, they 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 say, not in my name. And the uh, the my name becomes capitalized, mm-hmm. but it works for me too. Not in my name. Uh, not in the name of humanity. Yes. Uh, <coughs> and with with the the um, situation of being in prison, um, you have the opportunity through letters to have contact with. Groups. I mean, can you have any letter going out and coming in? Are there any kind of restrictions on your own expression? There, there are restrictions on the books. They could, they can do what they want to with our mail. But mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, our mail comes and goes very well, very easily. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as I can see, nothing that I've sent out has been censored. Uh, all the incoming mail is open, but I don't think it's really read. I think it's just a, that they don't have the personnel to, to do that. Right. And... Where does much of your mail go to? Well, a lot of it goes back to Florida. Um, Soars into plowshares is the, is the uh, slogan for this, and and we kind of consider that, you know, the sword was that Pershing missile, and the plowshare really is that peace community that is coming along in in mm-hmm. Florida, and when we look for results, that's where we we have to look. We do have a we did leave an invigorated peace movement in central Florida. Good. Excellent. <laughs> um, you you um, have mentioned that um, some of the Christians are um, viewing the missiles as, a, as, um, as an idol. Talk, talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yes, and... and uh, American nuclear policy is being uh, a state religion. Uh, yes, this is the, the, these weapons are the are the the modern idols, and it's up to us to smash them. And that uh, that one of the arguments that we're trying to get into court is that uh, American nuclear policy is uh, uh, we can't live with that. And claim to have any right to practice our religion, because it is—it's totally incompatible with our religion. But this kind, this um, um, argument of that these missiles deny 
true religious feeling and true religious expression is not being heard by the court, so. No, it's just it, we, it's just uh, started to be to be worked on. Mm. Well, Liz McAllister began to work on it for their Griffiths trial, and uh, it was a, a refinement of it. it was brought to the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals in in New York on their uh, on their appeal just a couple of weeks ago by Dean Hammer, who was one of the uh, one, one of my mates up there in Danbury. Um, one of the people, one of the one of our friends is the is Ramsey Clark, who was the uh, Attorney General under under uh, Johnson, and uh, has done many, taken part in many noble causes. Um, he has a great deal of hope for this argument. He thinks that over the years this will be the important legal argument. This and the international law hmm. argument. Uh, these things are very, very clearly illegal under international law and under the Nuremberg principles. Uh, we individuals do have the right and responsibility to act against our government when it's doing illegal things. Uh, so if we could get this argument heard in court, it would be, it would be lovely. Uh, so far the judges have just said, we're not going to hear that argument. Mm. And. Uh, they're still saying to the, the judge in, in uh, Syracuse said of the religious argument, he said, you know, that's an interesting argument, and someday some judge is going to hear it, but it's not going to be me. <laughs> so, um, through the various forms of sustained process, it may be that via the courts, the government have to start listening. And presumably that is part of the motive of those who engaged in such action? It's a tough one for uh, this peace movement. Uh, some people believe in the courts and some don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, when we get together in our communities, the communities will almost always break down with those who want to do a sophisticated legal defense and those who think that the courts are, are hopeless and would like to just speak the truth and yeah. forgetting about legal form and our friends out in Kansas City who got the 18 year term yeah. were among those who thought can't talk with these people in their language and they just uh, spoke the truth as they saw it yes. which was very powerful and eloquent but did not follow legal form it, which makes it very difficult for them to appeal by the way because that's hmm. and have they decided to appeal. Um, I know that um, Helen wrote to you. What's, what, how, what is she experiencing at this time, just beginning this long sentence? She's experiencing great discomfort, uh, that she'd been really counting on one to three years in prison. And if she'd had one to three years, that would have been, that was what she was bargaining for. And having 18, And yet, consistently, she cannot appeal. That's, that's, uh, um, she's always thought that the courts were demonic. They proved themselves to be de demonic. And, uh, and uh, she begins to ask herself questions like, uh, can I now go to Ramsey Clark and see if he can 
uh, her analogy was like hitting the, the right keys on the typewriter in order to set the margins the way you want them. Can she start seeing what she can do to set the margins the way she wants them? Or is it uh, more consistent with her, with her faith and her approach to, uh, to uh, triumph in her 18 years, knowing that this is, this is the way to victory? It's an extraordinary um, dilemma for her, isn't it? To, to keep faith uh, or to have faith in, in the legal system. And it's so much, even if you could have headlines in the New York Times or anything mm. suggesting that you're making a big impact, uh, it's so hard to, to keep on going without some visible signs of your impact. Yes. Uh, and then you ask, do you do these things simply because it's the right thing to do? Mm. Yes. And of course, in doing those things and it being the right thing to do, there's always a long-term consequence of it as well. Uh, what is actually taking place for all all of you who are in prison outside? I mean, is there any kind of protest or letters being written? Anything being organized on behalf of the people who are in prison? We have a uh, Peace Prisoners Fast uh, <coughs> once a month. Uh, on the first day of the month, all of us who are involved in these actions in all the various prisons that we're in around the country fast. And we uh, ask other people who are interested in doing so to join with us in that. And uh, we also have, uh, there's a woman who, who uh, takes our writings and uh, sends these out to the real small local peace newsletter letters, mm -hmm. the local groups around the country. And... Uh, so that there's that support, and we also each each one of our groups has a support committee, which publishes a a, a newspaper, mm. and um, does various um, sends some money for the prisoners' commissary funds if necessary, or yeah. or help out the families if necessary. Yes, that's, that's but these are these are each one of these groups is autonomous mm -hmm. and has its own autonomous support committee. Yeah. And it seems to me that uh, so important to bring to notice of as many people as possible uh, the situation that you are all in, and especially, of course, those people who are sentenced in Kansas. I mean, this is repression and totally out of touch with the actual events. And Perhaps there are ways and means that some of us here can, be, can get some more information from you and just start voicing our concern through letters and through speaking about it so that what's been repressed can actually be brought out. Is there anything else, uh, Jim, that you would like to uh, add this afternoon that you would like to... I'll talk to Pardon? All talked out. All talked out. <laughs> <laughs>
certainly I wouldn't wish to uh, express, uh, and on behalf of everybody, our real appreciation to you for your concern, for your courage, and and for all of those of you who uh, who are who are saying no in a very clear and direct way, and may it be that. Uh, all of these contributions by men and women in this world begin to make their inroads into government thinking. Amen. Amen. How are your five children uh, handling you know, their dad being in prison? Oh, they're, they think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> None of, them, none of them have followed me yet, though. No. <laughs> no. Good. Well, thank you very much, Jim, for giving us the time. <laughs> and in at half past six, is it, that you go back to Danbury? Yes. Good. Well, our love and warmth and uh, meta is with you and with all of you. And please keep in touch. And please, if you have time and opportunity and the freedom. Please come and spend some time with us. Thank you. Yeah, privileged to have you. Great. Thank you. <laughs>